Okay, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. Feels like it's been a while since we've been in 1 Corinthians. We kind of had the, the holiday time in there, and um, it's, it's been, it seems like it's been a long time since Jeremy last preached, at least it does to me, since he last preached. Uh, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. That's where we ended in 1 Corinthians 3, verse number 17, and so we're going to pick up in verse number 18. And let's read together the passage that we're going to study this morning, 1 Corinthians 3, 18, down through 4, 5. All right, this is God's word, 1 Corinthians 3, 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself. But I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. We see in this passage is, is the Holy Spirit, um, through Paul, he's helping us have perspective. I think this passage is all about perspective. And I think there's one uh, main lesson that we see culminating in these verses, and here's, here it is. Here's the big idea. God's wisdom unifies us around God's perspective of mankind in general and Christian leaders in particular, right? So God's wisdom brings us unity. And how does it do that? Well, it gives us his perspective of how he looks at men. Men in general, and then leaders in specific. So Paul has, from chapter 1, been urging the Corinthians to pursue unity. And so since chapter 1, he's been building on that theme by talking about wisdom. He talked about the wisdom of God that's seen in the cross. He talked about the wisdom of God that's seen in the calling of the Corinthians. He talked about the wisdom of God that's seen in his own ministry. He talked about the wisdom of God that's seen and the Spirit's supernatural work. And then when he got to chapter 3, Paul began to turn to a little more application when he told the Corinthians that he couldn't even address them as spiritual people because where there was division, there was disunity, there was carnality everywhere. He explained to them that, that Apollos and Paul and all these people are just servants, they're just farm workers They've just done the planting and watering, but God is the one who has given the growth. What matters is that those farm workers take care how they build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And then he talked in in the last sermon that Jeremy preached, he he pointed us to the importance of the local church, pointed us to how much God values the corporate gathering because he talked about the fact that, that you corporately are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you. And if anyone destroys that temple, God will destroy them. So now we get to verse number 18. We're going to see that God's wisdom unifies us around God's perspective of mankind in general 
and Christian leaders in particular. We get to verse number 18, and Paul issues a command. And as I was even reviewing for for this sermon, I I read back through chapter 1 and chapter 2, and I noticed something that hadn't really stood out to me before. And that is in chapters 1 and 2, and even in 3, there are very few commands in this opening of Corinthians. Have you noticed that? There are very few direct, don't do this, do do this. All right? He told them, um, pursue humility and oneness, and then he just went on this long talk about wisdom. He didn't tell them pursue wisdom. He didn't tell them find wisdom. He just told them this is what wisdom is. He was just explaining to them the, the nature of wisdom with, with very minimal commands, really. There's really only about three commands that go in chapters 1 and 2 and 3. That doesn't mean, obviously, that we don't make application from 1 and 2 and 3, right? There are things that we ought to do with, with this wisdom. But when you get to verse 18, now Paul is, is turning a corner where now he's building to the, to the command point. If you, if you consider chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 as kind of one sermon, as one message, he's getting to some, to some do this in his sermon. I'm not just explaining things to you. I'm telling you this is what you ought to do about it. And what he says in verse number 18 is, let no one deceive himself. And so our first point this morning from verses um, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, and 23 are, don't deceive yourself by boasting in man's wisdom. Don't deceive yourself by boasting in man's wisdom. He says, let no one deceive himself. The, the words that, that Paul used are actually have the idea of stop deceiving yourself. All right? he, he's not saying this might be happening. He's saying this is happening. Stop deceiving yourself. Let, let no one deceive yourself. He says, don't be fooled into thinking that you can adopt the philosophies and the values of the world without damaging the church. And remember that God takes damaging the church very seriously. So he says, don't be tricked. Don't be, don't be fooled. He says, if anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. It says, if anyone among you, and again, the words that Paul uses in the original, it means that some of them really did think this. Some of the Corinthians really did think that they were wise in this world. He says, if anyone among you, it's really kind of a since some among you think this, then you need to take care. If there's anyone, there's anyone among you who thinks they're wise in this, in this age, this is what you should do. Become a fool that you may become wise. The path of wisdom is to side with God. And God reverses many of the values that are cherished in the world. The worldly wise Christian, Paul is saying, is the deceived Christian. Right? The one who was wise in this age, he's tricked himself. He's fooled himself. He should renounce the world's wisdom. He should renounce the world's value scale and instead embrace God's. Because part of what it, part of what it means to be a Christian is to side with God when it comes to what we value. We can't be wise in this world sight and wise in God at the same time. He says, if anyone among you, this is not a problem for outsiders, for the Corinthians. This is a problem for insiders, right? This is a Christian problem. The problem is that there are those who are among you, Paul says, in the church in Corinth, and I think we need to hear that for ourselves as well. There are those who are among us who might think that we're wise in this age. And Paul says, I, I, have, I have instruction for you if that's you. If you think you're wise in this age, then you need to become a fool according to the world's perspective. 
And this is nothing new. Rather, this is the kind of crescendo that Paul's been building on since chapter 1. Because since chapter 1, Paul has been talking about the wisdom of God and how the world says that's foolish. Do you, do you remember back when he talked about the cross? The preaching the cross is what? It's foolishness to those who are perishing. They think that's ludicrous. You put your hope in a crucified Messiah? How, how dumb is that according to the world? Uh, the, the world doesn't understand the cross. In fact, it says it's foolish. And so now Paul says what you need to know is that if you're going to be wise in God's sight, you must accept being a fool in the world's. Because the world does not understand the cross nor any of the other principles of Christ. So think about this for, for just a second. What are, what are some of the, the principles that come from Christ that the world does not understand? I'll just, I'll just give you a couple. Um, the, world, the world teaches that if you're wronged, the thing you ought to do is get even. Right? The thing you ought to do is get back, and that makes good logical sense. If someone gets you, you get them back worse. All right? And then God says things like, forgive your enemies or turn the other cheek. And the world says that doesn't make any sense. Um, this is a message that our world embraces. Uh, I was even thinking of just an, an easy illustration of this. I, I don't watch a lot of TV, um, but I saw an ad for a TV show, and I told my wife, we will never watch that in my house. All right, it was a show, uh, and the title of the show, it's called Revenge. All right, that's, that's the name of it. Like the whole point of the show is going out and getting vengeance. And I don't know how this person was wronged. I mean, I don't know the story, but the whole point is go out there and get some revenge. Right? Whereas God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. That doesn't make sense from, from the world's perspective, all right? The world says what you really need to do is look out for number one, all right? Number one meaning you, all right? Look out for yourself. Whereas God says in places like Philippians that you should count others more significant than yourself. Look every man not just to his own interest but to the interest of others. You see, that, that's crazy in the world's perspective. If you're not looking out for yourself, who will? See, I, the world says a very different message from what God has to say. So, I think Paul is he's building on what he's been saying about wisdom, most clearly seen in the cross, but all of God's wisdom looks foolish to the world. And so, here's the point. Don't kid yourself. If you think you're wise in this world, you're going to have to become a fool according to that wisdom. You're going to have to embrace a cross kind of perspective. You're going to have to embrace an upside-down world. Here's why in verse number 19. Here's why this makes good sense for the Christian. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. This world's wisdom, it looks crazy to God. So you can take your pick. Do you want to look crazy to the world or do you want to look crazy to God? Because what God says is this world's wisdom, its, it's best invention of how to live and how to make sense of life is foolishness. The wisdom of this world is folly to God. Why is that? Well, man's wisdom can't fool God, and it's empty. Look at, look at what he says. God's, man's, uh, man's wisdom, it can't fool God, and it's empty. He says in verse number 19, For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. Right? God is the one who catches the wise people in their own craftiness. They come up with their schemes, and God catches people in their own schemes. All right? Man's wisdom can't fool God. There's actually a quote from Job 5.13. And it comes from the mouth of Eliphaz. If you're familiar with Job at all, uh, you know something interesting happens to Eliphaz. 
at the end of the book, right? He's been giving his wisdom throughout the whole book of Job. And then he gets to the end, and what do we find out? Eliphaz was actually the one who was, who was presenting his side of wisdom, and he was the one who was being a fool. So it's really quite ironic that this quote comes from Eliphaz because God actually caught Eliphaz in his own craftiness. All right? God catches those who think they're wise in this world, and he snares them in their own trickiness. So man's wisdom can't fool God, so it makes perfectly good sense to not be deceived. Man's wisdom can't fool God. Secondly, it's empty. Notice it says in verse 20, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. They're futile. They're, there's nothing to it. All right? What looks like wisdom to this world is just emptiness. That's a quote from Psalm 94, verse number 11. Uh, just an interesting, interesting to me, maybe interesting to you, side note. Uh, Paul quotes Psalm 94, 11, and he does it from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, so I just find that curious at, at some time, Sometimes the apostles quote from the Hebrew Old Testament. Sometimes they quote from the Greek. Here he quotes from the Greek. So I don't know. Uh, we're using one particular translation this morning, um, but not even the apostles um, would only use one particular translation. I just think that's interesting. Uh, little side note. All right, uh, that's not the point. The point is uh, the, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, and they're futile. They're, they're empty because man's wisdom ends up in emptiness. So don't deceive yourself by boasting in man's wisdom, all right? Don't deceive yourself. Verse number 21, this is really kind of the same command of don't deceive yourself by boasting in man's wisdom. He says, so let no one boast in men. No more boasting about men. If, if, if man's wisdom is, is empty, if it's futile in God's sight, if it doesn't fool God, then stop boasting in man. It's idolatrous to boast in man when all we should be boasting about is Christ. So let no one boast in men. Notice he says, for all things are yours. I think a key as we look through this particular paragraph, that little word for, it's always an explanation. Paul is very concerned to keep explaining why he says what he says. And so it keeps showing up in this passage. Notice he had already said, become a fool that you may become wise. And then he explains, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness, for it's written. Right? Now he says, don't let anyone boast in men. And then he gives a reason, for all things are yours. Right? So, so a reason that we shouldn't boast in men is because leaders belong to the church and all things belong to God. Right? Focusing on men is wrong because it's the wrong person to focus on. And it actually robs Christians of the heritage that's supposed to be theirs. Remember, Paul's still talking about people that are making division over particular leaders. And he says, don't boast in any particular man, in men, because all things are yours. Whether that's Paul or Apollos or Cephas, Cephas meaning Peter. He says, Corinthians, you, you, you got it backwards. You got it mixed up. You keep saying, I belong to Paul. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Peter. And, and Paul says, you're confused. Actually, it's the other way around. You don't belong to them. They belong to you. They're yours, they're for your benefit, therefore, therefore you're building up. And so if you just pick one and you lock in on them, you miss the fact that all the rest of them are yours too. No more boasting about men because leaders actually belong to the church. And there's more than one person who contributes to the church. The Corinthians thought that they were enriching themselves by claiming one particular teacher and kind of attaching themselves to them. But in reality, they were impoverishing themselves. They were cutting themselves off from all the rest of the teachers that God had for them. 
Now, no one does anything that they think is actually going to be spiritually damaging, but Paul says that's what they were doing. They were fooling themselves, and they were actually removing the fullness of blessing God had for them because all was theirs, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. But even beyond the people, Paul goes beyond that to say that, that there's even more blessing than that. Notice, notice it's not just the people that are theirs. And the Corinthians were just locked in with their little tiny perspective on this person is mine, and I follow him. He's, it's not just the people that are yours. He says, all things are yours, whether it's the people, like Paul, Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. Now, a lot of people have discussed, why does Paul pick these particular five things? What, what is the deal with these particular five things? Well, I think what Paul is saying is lift your, lift your eyes, church, beyond just the people and look that God has blessing for you in every arena of life, all right? God has, God has a whole new blessing for you in life when it, when it comes to the world. So we don't live in this world like we used to. Um, this world is not our home. We're just passing through. Uh, this world is temporary from our vantage point now. He says, it's ours now. Paul will later, later tell the Corinthians, use this world but not abusing it, right? So he says, all things are yours, whether it's the world or life. Life is ours now. Life is ours, particularly as Christians, in a whole new way. We have eternal life, and so now we have abundant life that we have in Christ. So that's ours. Death. Death no longer holds sway over the Christian like it does over the rest of the world. What is a tyranny to the rest of the world uh, is something that, yes, we, it's not like any of us are, are thrilled about it, but it's not final for us. We know that just like Christ was raised from the dead, we will be too. The present is ours. The future is ours. These are, these are some of the same things that Paul talks about in Romans 8.38. When he talks about nothing separating us from the, from the love of Christ, right? And all of these things he says there too, they're ours. So listen, Corinthians, and, and listen, Grace Church, let's not just lock in on we, we just have one particular person and that, that's where all of our focus goes. God says that particular person is yours just like the rest of the leaders. In fact, just like all things in life, God intends to bless you with. So instead of having this really narrow vision of I'm only going to follow this one person, realize the fullness of the scope of the blessing that God has for the church. There is a full, God-sized dimension to biblical Christianity. And, and it would be a shame if we reduced all of that God has for us into what only one single Christian leader can teach us and point us to. No matter how talented or capable that one particular teacher is, they could never bring to us the fullness of the blessing that God has for us. They're only one person. And that's far short of all that God has given us in the church. Paul lifts our eyes past the teachers, past even all that is ours in the world, to who we are in Christ. Because it's not just what is ours that matters, it's whose we are that matters. It's not just what belongs to us, but who we belong to. Look at what he goes on to say. All these things are yours in verse 23, and you are Christ's. It's not just what we have, it's who has us. And we are Christ. All of us find value in ourselves one way or the other, right? All of us, no one in here thinks that they are invaluable. You have a reason for thinking that you have value. The only question is what it is that makes you think you're valuable. What makes you valuable as a human being? Do you find value in your own perception of, of yourself? 
our, our self-image, or maybe in our accomplishments, or maybe in our personality. For some reason, uh, we, we think that we have value, and our world tells us it ought to be in, in your good opinion of yourself and, and all the good things that you do. What Paul says is you have value, and it's because you are Christ, and this is intended to motivate and encourage the Corinthians. You are Christ. You belong to him, and you do his bidding. In the uh, 16th century, there was a theologian, and he asked a question. I think both the question and the answer is amazing, but I think even the question is not something that we ask often. So they're, they're even thinking about questions. I'm not sure we are. Here's his question to himself. What is your only comfort in life and death? All right, how many times have you asked yourself that question? You're sitting around meditating, I don't know, getting ready for grace group, and, and you thought, oh, good question to ask tonight is, what is our only comfort in life and death? All right, that's what he asked himself. This is, it. This is his answer that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That is what Zacharias or Sinus said was true about himself. Here's my comfort in life, and this is my only comfort in life. I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if that sounds a little extreme to you, and I think even as I considered that, I asked if that was true of myself. I thought, that sounds a, little, sounds a little extreme. And perhaps it's because we know too many earthly comforts and we know too many materialistic pleasures that our only comfort is not in Christ. Perhaps we've become distracted from the supreme source of comfort and value because when Paul tells the Corinthians, you are Christ, he intends that to totally change the way they think. You belong to Christ. It's interesting that I think we live in a day that has talked more about self-image and self-worth than any other, and yet we live in a nation of the therapeutic, right? Uh, we've got more people going to psychiatrists and psychologists and taking every number of drugs and everything else to feel better about themselves, and we've never been more focused on ourselves as a nation. Here's the comfort to the, to the Corinthians. Here's what's supposed to change their perspective. You're Christ's. You're Christ. Remarkably, he says, you are Christ, and Christ is God's. That's a statement of amazing humility um, for Jesus Christ. He's not saying that, that Christ is somehow different than God or not God. I think what he's talking about is really the functional subordination. Christ, Christ is not inferior to God, but he always did his will. In fact, he said that throughout his life, right? My will is to, to do what my meat is to do the will of the Father. Christ is God's. He follows God's bidding. He does God's purposes. He lives to the glory of God. And so Paul says, don't deceive yourself by boasting in men. It's foolishness to use man's wisdom and put it above God's. Here's some application before I move on to the second point. How do we know if we've turned our backs on the wisdom of the world and embraced the foolishness of God? How do we know if we've done that? We say, I want to obey this passage. It says... If you think you're wise, become a fool. How do I know if I've become a fool in this world's eyes? Well, I think it starts with the gospel. Right? It starts with an easy one. Have you embraced the gospel? Because the world says it's foolish. And then it bleeds from there into all the commands of Christ. So have you personally believed in the foolishness of the message that is preached of the cross? Are you sharing that message without embarrassment? So it doesn't matter if you're a junior higher, or a high school student? Are, are, you, are you willing to say, I don't care if the world says it's foolish to believe this way about Jesus, I will do it and I'll pursue him. 
doesn't matter if, that's wh- if, if you're the weird guy at work who believes what you believe about Jesus Christ. Ha- ha- have you embraced what the world says is folly because you've turned to the wisdom of God? Are you actively taking God's perspective on mankind? Do, do the principles that God has make more and more sense to you while the world's wisdom continues to look more and more shallow? These are ways that we can ask ourselves, have I turned my back on the wisdom of the world for the wisdom that is God's? All right? Don't deceive yourself by boasting in man's wisdom. We move on into chapter number four, and Paul has another perspective for us that, that brings us unity. This is God's perspective on men that brings us unity. First of all, his perspective is don't be, don't be boasting in man's wisdom. If we do that as a church, we will come together because our boasting will be in the wisdom of God and not in a particular person. But, but secondly, Paul says, don't, don't boast in men and regard Christian leaders as slaves who must be faithful. Look in verse number one. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. We should think rightly about leaders, Paul says. They're just slaves who must be faithful. This is how one should regard us, servants of Christ, Stewards of the mysteries of God. When he says servants of Christ, that's a word that originally meant an under rower, meant a slave who was in the worst spot on the ship. You're down at the bottom with the oar, right? That, that word eventually began to change even in the first century. It came more to mean like an assistant, all right, an, an assistant slave. In fact, it's even a word that's used for like John Mark when he was responsible for helping Paul. So it, it didn't stay that meaning of just this menial, low-class slave, but it still has that, that idea of an assistant, somebody who is responsible to others. So a servant of Christ, an under-rower for Christ, a, an assistant for him, and a steward of the mysteries of God. That word steward was also used for slaves, but the kind of slaves that were the household slaves, they were the chief slaves who told all the other slaves what to do. All right, so, so there were slaves of different classes, and the chief slave who was responsible for running the home um, the running the property, whatever it was, um, the chief household slave was called the steward, right? And so, so Paul says, if you want to think right about Christian leaders, then think of them as underlings for Christ and overseers for God, all right? They're underlings for Christ and they're overseers for God. He says, they're servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Paul had already talked, I know it's been a while since we've been in chapter 2, but in chapter 2, verse number 7, he already talked about the mysteries, all right? He's talking about um, some of the great gospel truths that, that we now see in clarity, um, that the things that the world would not understand, the natural man doesn't grasp, but is revealed to us. He's talking about revelation. So servants of Christ have a driving mandate, and it's the gospel of Christ that they're stewards of. I think any leadership model that prioritizes or fixates on the leader itself actually threatens the gospel. And this is why, right? Because, because a true leader, this is how people ought to regard Christian leaders like Paul. They're just slaves of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And if there's something else, it's no longer the mysteries of God that gain the attention. It's the individual. Instead of the world's way of perceiving leadership, the world, the world says Here's how leadership works. You have the most elevated people. They've got the most talent. They've got the most, um, I don't know, charisma. They, they, they've got the most goodness. And, and so they, they look down kindly on all those below them, and they give them a helping hand, and, and they guide them through life because they're so much better. And uh, the world looks at leader as top down. I'll stand over you. And since I can do this so much better than you can, then I will lead you in the right way. All right? 
Christian leadership is more like an inverted pyramid, right? It's an upside-down pyramid. The leaders are the slaves to all, and they're the property of all. They're the ones down at the bottom, not at the top. Because the right, the right way to regard Christian leaders is that they're just servants of Christ and stewards of God's mystery. So they're slaves and not masters, and what's required of them is to be faithful. Look at verse number two. Moreover, on top of that, on top of regarding them as servants, what is required of stewards is that they be found trustworthy. What is required is faithfulness. And I think this too is an element of grace from God. God says, here's what I expect from Christian leaders. I expect you to be faithful. I expect you to day in and day out prize what I prize and teach what I teach and follow me as I have taught you. This is what good Christian leadership looks like. It looks like faithfulness. I think worldly wisdom says what makes a good leader is something like eloquence. Isn't, that's what the Corinthians wanted, right? They didn't want Paul coming with weakness and in fear. They wanted him to come with brilliant rhetoric, with phenomenal logic. The world says what you need is eloquence. What the world says is you need performance. You need flash. You need, you know, you need a wow factor. The world says what makes a good leader is, a, is you just got to have a lot of initiative. You always got to want to be the, the first one on the spot. The world says, well, a good leader, they're the ones that are, that are successful. There's a tricky word to define for you. A good leader, they just got all the success. A good leader, they're the ones with all the charisma. They got the charm. I mean, that's who you want leading your church, the guy with all the charm. I fear that worldly wisdom so easily creeps into the church just like it had in the Corinthians because what their world says was how you ought to have good leadership was what they were prizing. Paul says that's not what God requires. God requires something different. He requires faithfulness. I think we see so few examples in our world of servant leadership. And we so highly prize what we think of as excellence that God's expectation of faithfulness, it almost seems too small. You almost think like, God, you kind of undersold that one a little bit. I mean, to to say that what's required is just faithfulness, it's kind of short selling the church. I mean, yeah, faithfulness, that's, that's great. But, but can't we have a few other things on top of that, right? I mean, faithfulness is good, um, but, but what, about, what about brilliance? Uh, I mean, what about a certain IQ? What, what about, you know, a, a certain degree? I mean, can't we have something more than just faithfulness? And God says, no, what's required of stewards is just faithfulness. Remember that Paul had been with these people in weakness, not in the power they thought was so impressive. And Paul is trying to retrain them, just like I think he needs to retrain us, that what is expected of a good Christian leader is faithfulness, not performance, uh, not, not wow factor, but faithfulness. Paul says, regard Christian leaders as slaves who must be faithful. And if we can come to that perception, then we will have unity because we'll have God's perception of Christian leaders. Last point this morning, as we try to, try to pursue the wisdom that comes from God and having his, his vantage point, that's what we want. We want God's perspective on people. So God's perspective on people is don't boast in their wisdom because they don't have much when it's compared to God. All right? God's perspective of leaders is just consider them slaves who have to be faithful. One more this morning. Leave final judgment of Christian leaders to God. Leave final judgment of Christian leaders to God. Notice in verse number three. 
He's already said they need to be found trustworthy. But who is it that finds Paul trustworthy? I think we might expect him to start talking about the church, but look at what he says. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Paul reminds us there is a much more serious evaluation pending than just the church's judgment. Because while on the one hand leaders belong to the church, on the other hand they do not stand in judgment by her. Christian leaders are the servants of the church, but the church is actually not the master. All right? And this is where you can run too far with the illustration. We go, oh yeah, Christian leaders are supposed to be servants. They're supposed to be servants to me. Paul says, hang on. They need to be found trustworthy. They need to be found faithful. But who they need to be found faithful by is not the church. They need to be found faithful by a much more high, a much higher judge. That's by God himself. It's the master's view that counts. Not servants judging other servants or even servants judging themselves. He says, I counted a small thing to be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, this is not Paul being arrogant. He's applying the same standard to himself. He says, in fact, I do not even judge myself. Paul's point is not that you don't ever examine yourself. I mean, clearly he teaches us in other places, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith, right? Take this in his context. He's saying, I don't stand in, I don't stand in, in judgment of my own ministry and think that that's accurate. Because he says, for, verse number four, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. He says, just because I can't think of, of, of how my ministry has been flawed with you, how I stand in judgment of, of my faithfulness, that doesn't mean that I'm innocent. It just means that I, I don't see it. I can't think of it. Because human judgment, even self-judgment, is flawed. And Paul knows that. He says, there, there isn't anything that I can think of, Corinthians, that I've done wrong with you, but that doesn't mean I haven't. I'm not acquitted by my own judgment of myself. Therefore, oh, at the end of verse number four, I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. All right? I don't stand in judgment myself because the Lord is the one who judges, and he's a much more accurate judge than I am. It's the master's view that counts. If we are constantly striving to please ourselves or own conscience, then we forget who we're serving. That's a much more, um, that's a much more attainable graspable, I mean, we can hang on to that. Like, as long as, as long as I feel good about my ministry, then I, I'm in good shape. And Paul says, whoa, 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 wait a second. Leave final judgment of Christian leaders to God, not even to yourself. He says, I'm not aware of anything against myself. Keep this in context. He doesn't mean he's unaware of any sin or fault he's ever had, right? I mean, Paul was the one who said, I'm the chief of sinners. He was well aware of sin. But in the context of trustworthy ministry, his conscience is clear. Right? His conscience is clear in this. We even see him do this in other passages. He tells the Ephesian elders, I, I proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. All right? I'm, I'm innocent of your blood. He can't think, he can't think of any way um, that he's failed in his ministry, but that clear conscience doesn't mean he's blameless because at the end of the day, there is only one opinion that ultimately matters, and that's God's. I think it's interesting to note that introspection is not always the right way forward. So looking, looking inside ourselves is not always the way to go. You might think you know what you've accomplished for God. All right? you, Christian leaders might think, I, I, know, I know how it's gone. I, I know how I've done. As one commentator wrote, the result may depress you beyond reason or it may exalt you beyond measure. Your evaluation of yourself might leave you just totally depressed. Uh, I have 
I'm, I'm a horrible failure as a leader and as a Christian. Or on the other hand, you might end up walking away from your own evaluation of yourself and you go, yeah, I, I did that pretty well. Um, you know, you got to throw in a humility bone in there. Like, oh, I, it probably wasn't as well as I could have. But I mean, yeah, I basically handled that situation. I, I hit that one out of the park. Like, I nailed it. I'm in good shape. I was good ministry self. That evaluation is not the same as God's. Paul says whether he comes up short in the Corinthians analysis or if he receives praise, neither verdict actually carries weight with God. And so it doesn't carry weight with him. I think we should avoid despair in assuming failure about ourselves or presumption in assuming success until the day of the Lord. Anytime prior to the day of the Lord, it's early to evaluate whether our ministry has been a complete success or complete success or complete failure. He says, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. This is notice it's a premature judgment. This is something that should be reserved for later. He says, before the time, before the Lord comes. That's the time. That's the time for final judgment. It's when the Lord himself comes. And what's he going to do when he comes? He will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. That's when there's actually going to be an accurate judgment. All right? Human judgment's flawed, even our own self-judgment. But there's a day coming when there's going to be a completely accurate reckoning and a completely accurate assessment. And that's coming from the Lord. Paul isn't saying we're just indifferent about the, about the correction and the perspective of others. His point is that the analysis of others ought not drive us and we shouldn't treat it like it's the final word. Right? Well, the opinion of the church is actually not the final word on a leader's ministry. We cannot pass the Lord's verdict for him. So we can consider ourselves to see if we're being faithful and diligent and wholehearted, things we're commanded to do. That kind of analysis is helpful but to decide what level of congratulation we or others should get is foolishness. That's not our place. We do not have the ability in this life to take the full measure of a man. And again, let's, let's be, I don't know, balance might be an overused word, but, but let's, be, let, let's have the whole counsel of Scripture, all right? This is not a passage that says don't ever be discerning and throw any kind of judgment to the wind, right? I, I think that's more the era in which we live where maybe a verse like this kind of like, um, judge not lest you be not judged versus like the mantra, like people, more people know that verse than they know John 3.16, you know, don't be a hater, don't be telling me that I did something wrong because that's judgmental, all right? We can't go there with this verse. Let's, let's not forget other things that we're commanded to do. So, for instance, 1 Timothy 5.19 and 20, Paul himself, the same guy who wrote this, is also the one who said that if an elder is overtaken in a sin, then you tell it to the whole church, all right? That's, that's a judgment, all right? Um, We've got the Bereans, right? And Paul congratulates the Bereans because what did they do? Well, they were more noble than the Jews of Thessalonica because they heard what he said and then they went to the scripture to see if these things were so. All right, that's, that's evaluation. That's, that's not discouraged and that's not what this passage is, is distur- discouraging. This is, this is a hasty and an inappropriate kind of judgment. This passage can't mean don't ever judge anyone about anything, anytime. What is forbidden is passing judgment on the worth or the validity of a faithful leader and the leader's ministry. I think we so easily class leaders as success or failure, and then we, then we treat them accordingly. We treat them with either respect or we treat them with disdain because we have decided 
this particular person is a success or a failure. Paul says, don't judge before the day. Slaves are responsible to their master, and that's not you. You are not the master, but Christ is. He is, in just the next chapter, he's going to tell us in 5, verse number 12, that we're supposed to judge those who are on the inside because of their flagrant immorality. This is not a command to don't ever judge. What he says is, don't pronounce a judgment on, on a leader's ministry before the time comes when the Lord analyzes that ministry. Remember in the last, the last chapter where, where he talked about those who build on the foundation and some use gold and silver and precious stones and others use wood, hay, and straw and, and it gets burned up if it's wood, hay, and straw, right? That's a burning up that only God can do, right? God is the one who evaluates if the work that was done was, was done well and successfully because even what we tell ourselves and what our world tells us is a successful ministry doesn't always line up with what God says is successful ministry. It's so easy for our sinful preconceptions to sneak into our judgments of other leaders and of other ministries. And so Paul says, don't do it. Here's, here's how you should regard Christian leaders. You should, you should regard them as slaves of Christ, stewards of God, and leave the final judgment of them to God. Because our human judgment is flawed and God is the only perfect judge. Notice he says, when the Lord comes, he will bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Now, I think when we hear the word darkness, a lot of times we ultimately jump to something evil, right? It's used most, I don't know, most often in the Bible that way. Darkness, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. I don't think that this word darkness in this case is a, is a, is a morality issue, all right? He's just saying there are things that are now hidden, all right? There are things that you can't see. You can't actually see into men's hearts. You, there, there's ministry that happens that you don't notice. There, there's stuff that's just hidden right now. Nothing has to be evil things. Uh, the word itself is a neutral word. In the context, it doesn't seem to be immorality or, or, or a morality thing. He'll bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. See again there, the purposes of the heart. He's, he's not saying he's going he's gonna to disclose all the sin that's, that's hidden in there. He's just saying you, you can't tell what the purpose of the heart is. Only God can. And so he'll, he'll reveal that. All right? Notice what's going to happen when he does that. And here's another reason that I, that I say I don't think this is, that is wrong when we're talking about darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart. Because when I read that, I think, oh boy, uh, once the purposes of the heart get revealed and darkness is revealed, we're going to see a lot of sin and we're going to see a lot of problems. And uh, man, when this day of judgment comes, it is going to be an ugly thing. All right? That's, that's, my, that's how I respond to reading that. And then I say, well, I need to finish reading the verse. And then what, what do we find when we finish the verse? What's going to happen when those things that are hidden in the darkness and the purposes of the heart, what's going to happen when those things are revealed? Then each one will receive his, what? I'm like, whoa, commendation from God. I was thinking a different C word. I was thinking more like condemnation, right? He says, here's what's going to happen when, when what's hidden is revealed. Then you're going to get commended by God. Right? This, is, this is not a judgment on, on sin and evil. This is, this is the evaluation of the right sense of reward that believers get. That's when you get your commendation from the Lord is when the final accurate judgment is given. God's praise is the ultimate reward. The Corinthians were so busy deciding which human teacher should be praised. 
that they failed to realize that only God's praise ultimately matters. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine being praised by God, receiving commendation from Him? What could possibly be greater? Certainly no amount of human, earthly-centered praise. Certainly nobody saying, this guy's my guy. He, I mean, I follow him. I, I, I love him, and his ministry is great. Compare that to receiving commendation from God and what is earthly, man-centered praise pales and dims in significance. And yet still we struggle to, to gather praise from people. And we live in the fear of man, and we, we want people to think so well of us. Whose praise are, are you laboring for? And whose praise do we think is most significant? Because Paul says there's a day coming, a day of revelation, a day of final judgment, and on that day, each one will receive commendation from God. How do you regard Christian leaders? How do you look at them? Do you, do you have one Christian leader or several Christian leaders on a pedestal that God never intended slaves to be on? Do you find yourself rushing to judgment on Christian leaders? Have you, have you borrowed from God's job that he's going to do at the final judgment? And you've done it early and you've done it yourself. Have, have you possibly confused being judgmental of a person's ministry with, with being discerning? Paul says, leave final judgment for the final day. So these are all perspectives that God has for us. And, and, if, and if we will agree on these perspectives, then God's wisdom will unify us because we'll look at mankind in general and leaders in specific, we'll look at them the way God wants us to. Paul's been making this argument from chapter one. He's been saying, man's wisdom, it's foolishness. Don't be boasting in it. He's been saying leaders are just servants, so think of them that way. And he's been saying, leave final judgment to God. Agreement of this perspective is what brings unity because this perspective is the wisdom of God for us in the church.